Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Loudon Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 135. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 135 you're listening to. My guest today is Mr. Jakir King, who, of course, is a record producer, engineer, and mixer. And I know that all of you, many of you, know his work with Kings of Leon, Tom Waits, James Bay, Modest Mouse, Buddy Guy, Nora Jones, uh, Cold War Kids. It's just uh, the list is endless. He has received more than 30 Grammy Award nominations to date, according to what I, I have read here. So, uh, yeah, Jakir King coming up. I was uh, fortunate to, uh, well, actually, I'm in Nashville right now, and uh, more on that in a minute. But uh, I was able to go out to uh, visit Jakir in person at his studio in uh, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. So, yeah, Jakir King coming up. So, here I am. I'm in Nashville right now. As I record this, I'm actually sitting in the control room of the Toy Box Studio, which is, of course, owned by my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm staying, I'm actually staying in the studio, not in the control room. There's a loft upstairs and there's a futon. It's very comfortable and I've been sleeping well, of course. Thank you, Lidge. Um, but I'm here for the NAMM show. I'm here also with a group of guys that I know from uh, other blogs and uh, YouTube channels and podcasts. I just want to give a shout out to all those guys. Pete Woj from Mix Better Now, Chris Slim from Mix Down Online, Chris Graham from Chris Graham Mastering. Chris, of course, Chris Graham has been on the show. Uh, Dane Myers and Christian Sierra from Custom Tracks and uh, Joe Gilder from Home Studio Corner, Brian Hood from the Six Figure Home Studio, and of course, Lidge. We all know each other because we're all, I guess, you know, internet people, bloggers, YouTubers, podcasters, whatever. So we all converged on Lidge's house. And uh, it was the first time I've actually met a lot of these guys in, in person. And so it's been a really fun experience, aside from the whole NAM experience and the whole uh, Nashville trip in general. And I, I just got to give a shout out to all the people here in Nashville who have been so welcoming. This this is a fantastic city, and it's everything that I thought it was. I have a vague memory of touring back here in the in the '90s, just coming through, but I've never spent this much time here. I've been here for several days. Uh, been to numerous parties. We were given a, a great tour, of course, by our friend Mark Rubel, who's been on the show. Mark gave us a tour of Blackbird Studios, and which is amazing. Mitch Dane, Advanced Pal, of course, welcomed us with open arms over at Sputnik Sound. It's just amazing what uh, what goes down here in the ecosystem uh, that is in existence here. So it's just fantastic. People are really nice, too. You know that? Really nice. The food's great. The people are nice. The only downside is it's damn hot. Yeah. I, I'm so used to wearing a coat. I haven't worn a coat the entire time I've been here. It's just been too hot. So today it's raining. It's thundering. So you might hear some unless I do some high-pass filtering here. Uh, there's a little bit of thunder in the background, but what a great place, Nashville. So uh, it's been good. You know, one of the highlights of our trip, uh, of course, has been we set up a tour of Blackbird with Mark Rubel, and uh, we went to a party uh, after the NAMM show one day, and I ran into Vance, and we were sitting at a table eating, and I'm going to do my Vance Pal imitation here. And he goes, all right, so um, look, um, you're going to go do a tour of uh, Blackbird. And, uh, and I was confused. I didn't, I lost track of the days and it was supposed to be on a Friday. And I said, no, 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 we're not. That's not until a few days from now. And he goes, no, look, Matt, tomorrow's Friday. You're going on a tour of Blackbird. Ruble's going to bring you over after the tour. And you're going to come to Sputnik. And, uh, then, uh, you're going to sit down. There's going to be some Blackbird students, you and all your crew over there from Lidge's house. You're going to come and sit in while I mix for a while and check it out and hang out. And I was, of course, you know, Blown away by that. How would you think of my Vance Pal imitation? Um, it was pretty good. I spent a little time around him. Anyhow, so we uh, were very fortunate. The guys were psyched. We got to sit and uh, Vance was mixing a tune uh, with this class from Blackbird uh, Academy. Me and my guys just sat there and watched him mix and listened to him chat. And it was quite an experience. You know, I mean, I've, 
I've watched Vance online and I know Vance, but you know, for me and my guys to be able to sit there and, and watch him do his thing is, was, was a real treat. So, and then we had a crazy party at Sputnik or they had a crazy party at Sputnik and uh, got to give a shout out, of course, to my friends from uh, Rupert Neve Designs, uh, Jonathan Pines and uh, Josh, Josh Thomas and uh, Chris DeRay took care of me and got me into the show. Uh, which was great. So I just want to say thanks to those guys. And they, of course, uh, were hosts over at the uh, Sputnik party. So had some hot chicken, Nashville hot chicken. That's what you do here, I guess. You have hot chicken. I'm going to eat so much more healthy when I get back to the Bay Area. I think all the weight that I've gained with beer and uh, fried food, I think is going to, I'm going to shed those pounds when I get home. So as far as the NAM show is concerned, I got to be honest, I, uh, it's not that I was disappointed, but I guess I was a little shocked it was a lot smaller than I thought it would be. It was, um, I don't know. It's just the pro audio presence alone was super small, and I wasn't expecting that. I'm sure many of you who came to the show knew that. I didn't. I didn't brush up on my NAM knowledge. I walked in and uh, walked a couple aisles, and then all of a sudden I immediately ran into guitars and you know, thought, wait a minute, that's it? That's you know, so used to a much bigger presence. So I... Um, you know, I, I walked the aisles. I saw uh, the friends I wanted to see. I've watched uh, a couple panels, watched a, a panel with uh, former WCA guest Kim Rosen, Catherine Veracoli, and Piper Payne, and Carrie Keys, who's, uh, who's a monitor engineer for Pearl Jam. Talk to her. I think she's going to be able to come on the show, so I'm really crossing my fingers for that. And uh, yeah, it's a fantastic time, though, either way, small or large, whatever. Although I do look forward to the winter NAM in Anaheim and all of its largeness and everything that comes with that, all of its craziness. But uh, yeah, it's been my experience. So there it is. Don't want to forget to uh, let you know about our friends over at Gear Sluts, of course, have the sub form known as Audio Life. We are sponsoring that and I would love to have you take a look at it, see what you think. A lot of similar topics on Audio Life as there are here on Working Class Audio. Ha, can you hear the train in the background? I don't know if you can hear that. Probably not. You can probably hear the air conditioner more than you can hear the train. Anyhow, want to give a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. And you know something we forget. You know, I always talk about the Apollo interfaces and the plugins and all that, but you know, they still make analog hardware. They still make the LA610 Mark II, the 6176, the 1176LN, the LA2A, uh, the Twinfinity 710s, and the Solo 610. Don't forget about this stuff. These are great sounding mic pre's and compressors. And you know, they're still there and they still make them and they're still classics. So check it out. Head on over to uaudio.com and uh, have a gander. Look under analog hardware. Who'd have thunk? Well, that's it. Let's get into our interview with Shakir King here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me here. As we were getting our coffee and coming over here, we were talking about just some of the potential degrees of separation between us because we both moved to the Bay Area about the same time. And I'd heard your name here and there, but I was still playing the drummer role and you were far deeper into the recording and live sound world, I think, at that yeah, time I than was, I was. Sure. Can you take me back to that time period? This We're talking about you know late 80s, early 90s in the Bay Area. And what was going on there for you that eventually led you into did you did you come to the Bay Area to become an engineer producer? I, I had um, already started my engineering career maybe a year and a half before I moved to the Bay Area in, in August of 1988, and uh, prior to that, I'd had a job at a studio for a little over a year in Maryland, Bethesda, Maryland, which is really close to D.C. where I grew up. I grew up in Northern Virginia. I had a cool job at a, at a studio that had an MCI console and tape machine and all that kind of wonderful stuff. It was also 1988 is about the time when MIDI was sort of becoming a thing, you know. Uh, so it kind of go way back. But after a year in at that studio in the, the Washington, D.C. area, I wanted to go to somewhere where I felt like there was more music industry. I had spent time in New York at Younger. And although I like visiting New York, I didn't picture myself living there or be part of that music scene. I didn't think Nashville was an option because uh, at the time, and it probably wasn't, because I did, wasn't really interested in country music or what I thought country music was. So I thought, well, I'll go to LA. And as it turns out, the studio manager that I had in Maryland had recently come from the Bay Area. 
and managing a studio out there. I wish I could remember Steve's last name. I'm drawing a blank. But he convinced me that I, if I'm going to go to California and look for a job, that I should at least go to San Francisco for a few days and look for a job there. So I said, okay, I put San Francisco on the tail end of my California trip. And I went to LA, went around for a few days for some studio job interviews and didn't like the people or the vibe. It was just, it was a different time. And, and I, it wasn't really the scene that I wanted to be in. I just didn't like, didn't get like the feeling of the way I was being treated on these job interviews. So I basically went to the beach for the rest of my time there and told the family that I was staying with, it was gracious enough to put me up that I was, uh, I was on job interviews. And I went to the Bay Area and I, and I did some interviews and I got a job at the studio called Different Fur. So I moved across country for this, for this job at Different Fur. It was really cool. The first thing they had me do, I thought, you know, I, here I am, moved to San Francisco, gonna get, I've got this great job. They had me paint the front of the building. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was just like, wow, there you go. You know, it's just like, not the whole entire building, but the whole entryway. Right. You know, it was it was a couple of days of painting, which was fine. I, you know, I knew I was like, okay, I'm earning my stripes. I get it. I worked there for maybe nine months. I ended up getting fired. Who was in control of different for then? Howard Johnson and Susan Skaggs. Right. Okay. They were they had they had taken it over from Pat Gleason, who was an associate of Herbie Hancock's. That's right. So Pat had started the studio, and I think Howard had been an engineer there. And, and Susan, you know, I think they'd also worked at the Automat together. So they took the studio over. We worked on a lot of different stuff. It was, it was cool. Uh, I got fired in a way to please a client because we were working on a, uh, the Unsolved Mysteries show, doing the music for that. And something got erased. And it wasn't because I had, at three in the morning, I got a little tired. And the track sheet didn't keep, keep, keep wasn't updated properly. And, and I had to be... I had to be let go because of that, which was interesting because after having had that job and made the move, I don't blame them for this. And I don't, you know, I'm not pointing a finger, but I sort of felt like after I lost that job, I was blackballed. I could not for the life of me get another job in the studio. So that's how I transitioned into doing live sound uh, as a way to make some, make some money and started working with bands. I did demos for the dance hall crashers over at Dancing Dog in the East Bay and and Dancing Dog, for the audience, that was Dave Bryson from the County mm -hmm. Crows studio. Uh, that was that was in Emeryville. It was. It was in Emeryville. If you're in the Bay Area, that's probably, I think, where Ikea is now. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Gosh, uh, just trying to remember all this stuff. But I started working for, um, you know, different bands, doing, doing sound in clubs. I worked at The Stone. In North uh, Beach, wow. Yeah, in North Beach doing sound. We did, we did, we would do, it was a lot of heavy rock and metal bands, five bands a night. It was a lot of pay for play stuff. But at the same time, you know, that's like before Primus had a gig there. And that was a, you know, that was an amazing thing. They, they packed the place out. Faith No More played there. I mean, there was like a lot of bands that were big bands in the Bay Area that hadn't really broken through in, you know, in the national scene or, in, or the world that in these clubs, you know, in 1988 that I was, I was kind of, I was getting exposed to. It made for a good education. I, I didn't relish at first the idea of doing live sound because mm -hmm. uh, I really wanted to be making records. But when I kind of adjusted to it emotionally, uh, I saw the, the benefits, I guess, because it's the same tools. Yeah. And, and I learned a lot from it. I think it really helped me as a mixer, being under the gun and having to do things quickly. That was certainly a, a help there. I also got a job at Slim's. I worked there on and off. I was the production manager at two separate times for about a year each. Mm -hmm. I worked at most of the clubs, the Fillmore, the I-Beam, the Warfield, DV8, and little bars too that I can't even remember. The Last Day, Last Day Saloon, Paradise. Yeah. Uh, tons of them. Doing sound. I made a relationship with this band called Consolidated. They were an industrial hip-hop band. They shared a rehearsal space with the Beatniks. Yeah. And uh, so Michael Frante was the the singer of the Beatniks, and Michael went on to partner with Charlie Hunter, and they had the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. Mark Pistol was a member. Mark of Pistol was a member of Consolidated yes, with was. Adam Sherburn. Yes. And Philip Steer. And Philip Steer. Yeah. Interesting side story. One of my older brothers has a childhood connection with Adam. There's so many connections, I guess we have, so many people we know in common. I spent, I lived in San Francisco for, for 12 years. 
there was a hip hop studio, a uh, rap studio called the the Grill that was in the basement of a, a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lev Burlack had that. John Nielsen, who was a engineer at um, it's not Claire Brothers. What is the sound? The big sound company that's out. Sound on, is it Sound on Stage? That sounds right, but I wouldn't know. I'm I think not... it is Sound on Stage. Well, John John worked at Sound on Stage, but then but he was also an engineer at the Grill, and I became an engineer at the Grill and. Lev and I partnered on some gear. I put some gear in there and the studio grew. So I got to be part of some, you know, real East Bay rap records and hip hop. And, but, you know, back to Consolidated, that relationship, that's, I I had met Craig Sylvie. Craig was an intern at Different Fur, but also an assistant over at Russian Hill. Yeah. And I eventually did have a job at Russian Hill. So Craig and I knew each other that way. And then Craig went on to have a relationship with Consolidated Making Records after I had worked with them doing live sound. Jason Carmer became a friend of mine very early on. When I left the Consolidated gig, because I had become tired of touring and and really just kind of wanted to focus on my my studio engineering career, Jason took over that job for me with Consolidated. And then when I helped Craig and Philip open toast which used to be coast i brought jason in there as an as an assistant engineer and i had been an intern with dan alexander at coast <laughs> you know the thing is is when i was starting out in some ways i was forced to be very entrepreneurial i guess in that i just did as much as i possibly could i did sound for bands i did demos for bands i interned at studios i was a production manager at slims and i was also an intern at coast i did what Ever I possibly could, I realized that Pro Tools rigs, that was something new and there was like a lot of power uh, in what they could do in production and record making. And so I scrapped together to have one. And then once I kind of got that going and started making money with it because I could rent it because I could rent it out, I got another one so that I could have one personally, but then also be renting one out at one point. And then Jason and I partnered. At one point, I, I owned or was at least part owner of five Pro Tools rigs. I remember that era of everybody buying up Pro Tools rigs or, or leasing them and then renting them out for high dollars and paying off the leases really fast. Totally. Yeah, because it was record budgets would accommodate it. Studios hadn't made the investment yet. It wasn't commonplace. It was sort of it was sort of the additional piece of hardware that you used with, you know, standard record production on a tape machine. And then, you know, subsequently being the younger engineers with this new technology, you that's how you kind of got additional engineering jobs because the older guys weren't really up to speed yet. It was crazy, you know. That time period that we're talking about in the Bay Area, it's not like that at all. It's no, it's, not. it's shifted, and a lot more of the studios are now based in the East Bay, and it's quite fascinating hearing you recount some of this and going, that's right, I remember that. But now it's a, it's a completely different animal entirely. I realized that, and at a certain point, went on to work with Eric Valentine, we met because he brought the first Third Eye Blind record to Toast. When a project like that, an engineer like that came in, I would be the assistant engineer. And we formed a, a really good friendship and relationship. He sort of realized that I was overqualified to be an assistant engineer, but, but I was happy to do it because you, you learn from watching others. And he's an incredibly talented guy. So um, it, was, yeah. it was great to be around him. He, he, he then hired me to help him with a record that he did the pre-production for. But he couldn't start it when they wanted to start. So he sent me to start it up in Milwaukee with, with a band called Citizen King. I worked with Eric on uh, Third Eye Blind and Smash Mouth and Citizen King. And we, we went on to do other things. But then Eric got in a situation where he ended up moving to L.A. I followed him to L.A. sort of on projects. So for a while, I had a, an apartment in San Francisco and an apartment in L.A. And before I was done, I also had an apartment in Nashville. So I had three apartments at, at a point in my life. This is around the year 2000 when San Francisco, that change this is what makes me think of all this, the change you're talking about when the dot-com era sort of boomed. And that's really what changed the landscape of San Francisco. Yeah. More than anything, because there was a rehearsal space. I don't remember. Downtown. Downtown. Where at least, it seemed like at least half of the bands in the Bay Area had a space. I mean, the place was giant. And it wasn't, it was like kind of more s- Southern San Francisco. Yeah, it was, it was towards South. Towards Central. the airport. Yeah, exactly. Buildings were being bought up, uh, downtown. That's that's what hurt the club scene because of the the real estate and development that was going on down there. And then the, the downtown was sold in hopes of, because of all this economic boom that it would turn into 
I guess, a location for, you know, a, some big dot com company and um, downtown rehearsal. Yeah, that, that downtown building. rehearsal. Yeah. yeah, and so all those musicians. I remember so many of my friends just, you know, just spreading out. Some many of them going to Los Angeles because at that point it was almost unaffordable to 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 continue in San Francisco. And and at that point, I just I had a a transitional point in my life, and I just sort of that was when I when I sort of saw all of these things happening, that's kind of when I decided that I wasn't going to stay in San Francisco anymore. I was going to go pursue other things. And it really wasn't, I, you know, I was in my early thirties at that point as well. So I always think about my own personal experiences and my own psychosis of being, you know, having an identity in something. I remember leaving my first band, the Sextants. That was emotionally very difficult for me because I just felt so tied, not only to these childhood friends, mm. but tied to that band. And, uh, you know, wow, what's going to happen? Well, then I j just joined another band. <laughs> <laughs> and and even when my wife said, let's leave San Francisco and move to Oakland, I went kicking and screaming, like, oh, my God, I don't want to live in the East Bay. And, and once we moved, it was fine. And so for yourself... Was there any emotion tied to that, or were you just a little more focused than I was and decided that this is what you need to do? It definitely took its toll emotionally. I guess in some ways, I'm just so, I have such tunnel vision for my goals, and that I also had met my wife just before 2000, who is actually from Nashville, because some friends that I grew up with in Virginia had ended up here after school. I didn't, fin I dropped out of college, but so. When I finally came to visit them here, uh -huh. that's when I met my wife, Monet. So then for a while, we were sort of juggling life and knew I was leaving San Francisco because I'd already sort of migrated a little bit to LA, but I didn't really, I, I, I guess I felt a little bit disconnected in both places at that point. And, you know, my life was changing. And the reason that I moved to Nashville was more than anything as a, was a life choice. I guess I put what I thought was going to be my family priorities first. I just couldn't imagine uh, raising my boys in L.A. Uh, with the money that I was making. I always had the goals of being successful and making the kind of money that you can make in the music business. Mm -hmm. So I, I wasn't giving up on that. All those goals are like long term. Mm -hmm. And I realized that and it's a very patient process. Y you learn that when you make a record, maybe it takes a few months to make it mm -hmm. it takes three to six more months before it's released and then maybe it's another six months before anybody knows about it you're kind of on this two-year cycle of your work bringing you results and then you also realize that the percentage maybe only 10 percent of the work that you do actually gets to a point in two years where it's actually meaningful in a way where it brings you more projects so i knew it was long term i just made i made a life decision to move to nashville because it felt like the music business is here. It felt like where I grew up. There's a familiarity to it. And I knew that, you know, the infrastructure of family and stuff is here. And I could afford to buy a house here. I, up to that point, I had spent the equivalent of buying a house on gear. And, and I was in debt and I had I'd margined myself as much as I possibly, I always had margined myself as much as I possibly could to have the gear to make myself available to just seize any opportunity I possibly could. So um, it was a little difficult because I felt disconnected. I had spent my entire 20s in the Bay Area. I loved it, but I was I, mean, I was growing up and I was changing too. I had cut, I had already cut off all my hair and cleaned up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get into to politics on this show, but I will say that, you know, obviously the Bay Area if you're outside the Bay Area, it's, it's you know, people joke, you know, the left coast, whatever you want to say. Mm -hmm. But it's culturally, it's a different place than Nashville. Yeah, totally. How was that adjustment for you? Well, I'm still in the music business. So I'm still around the type of creative people, like-minded people that I, anyway. Yeah. Life is not the same. No, but it's, it is an adjustment. You just, there's not as, there's not as much common ground with the people that surround you in life here as as there mm -hmm. but at this but at the same time i'm not as um i don't know what, what the right way to articulate it is you're but not as I, black and white about this. i'm not in black and white about things yeah thank you you're it's it's a maturity thing i i i have to acknowledge even for myself you know i used to be super passionate about certain things and i'm still passionate about those things but i think that as i get older 
and you and you're out in the world more you you learn that not everything is as is portrayed on the television and i'm sure coming to tennessee i mean there's some fantastic people oh in the state of tennessee amazing no doubt about it and i've had such a great time here in nashville so but you're I not, don't mean to put words in your no, mouth. No, you're not at all. But you're not in a place. You're not in a place of of that liberal open mindedness, right? Here, in terms of what the general demographic is, right? But uh, but there are tons of like minded people here. So it's I don't feel you find your friends. Yeah, it's to say I don't think I had I don't think I don't think I had more friends there than I have here. There wasn't necessarily more of the type of people that I could be friends with there. I just even if everybody sort of is a free thinker along a certain line doesn't mean that you're going to want to hang out with them. And, and people out there, people in San Francisco, at least when I was there, it's, it's pretty extreme, mm-hmm. some of it. So it's just like, that's not me either. I'm kind of- It can be, absolutely. I'm a little bit more, I'm just a little bit more in the middle. And I think that that's one of the reasons that I enjoy and, and have been successful at making records with a lot of different types of artists is I feel like I'm a pretty broad an easygoing person uh-huh. and I'm very accepting of other people because I want to be accepted. And I don't, my wife, who I love more than anyone in the world, we butt heads on stuff. That's like, there's things we just don't talk about because we see it so polar opposite. And, but that's okay. Yeah. You know, there's so much about her that I love. Wait, and- you argue with your wife? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like, yeah, you know, I don't, there's something, there's some very dear friends that there's certain things I just don't talk to them about. It is interesting as you if you remove some of those discussions, those political discussions, and you just focus on the commonality of music. Right. That's very helpful, I find, in getting along with people, as well as I guess, and and tell me if this is the same for you, is that as we make records and we're trying to be encouraging and supportive and accepting of different personalities, because Lord knows there's like, you know, a ton of quirky people in this business. <laughs> Bazillion. There's just as many quirky people in the world, and and, and that all kind of helps in getting along with those that you you wouldn't necessarily go seek out. Totally, that's exactly right. And oftentimes, I feel like there's a uh, an artist that I can I could help them make their record, but I don't know that we would have much more in common. But that's okay. You obviously you form a very deep and special sort of relationship mm-hmm. around the the creative effort. As long as they respect you, mm-hmm. it's, you can respect them. And there's a lot of things that don't don't really matter. And I don't have to dress the same or act the same or think the same as the person that I make a record with. As long as we kind of feel and, and can see the same creative power together and kind of make and manifest something that we both are excited about. The other stuff doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Jakir King here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little break here and have a sponsor break with our friends over at Audio-Technica. Not to toot my own horn, but if you go over to blog.audio-technica.com or if you just Google Audio-Technica blog, which is what I had to do, I've done an interview with those guys and it's called Behind the Mic Q&A with, with me. Yeah, it's just a little little quick interview. Have a, have a look, have a, a gander. I talk a little bit about uh, podcasting and a little bit about my backstory and how I got into it and just uh, my thoughts on a couple pieces of gear. So check that out. That's at blog.audio-technica.com or just, as I say, Google Audio Technica blog. So there it is. Let's get back into it with our friend Jakir King here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Coming to Nashville, was that just a kick in the pants for you? Was that just in terms of like, oh my gosh, I'm in a completely different environment. How did you establish your MO in Nashville? It was very different. And I had an opportunity with a band called Switchfoot mm-hmm. to make, who were signed to a, a label here. That was the first project that I did in Nashville. They're a San Diego band and they're signed to a, a label that's here in Nashville, or they were at the time. And they had made their previous record records in in Nashville. So it was like a perfect opportunity for me to come here and work with a with a rock band. That went well. I made friends with Vance Powell, who uh, was at the time, he was do he was Jars of Clay's live sound engineer, and he had helped uh, Steve Mason put a studio in his basement, which which uh, Mitch Dane became a partner in. Um, so I met those guys very early on. 
also Richard Dodd. I made his association. And Richard was kind enough to allow me to use his studio to mix the Switchfoot record. As soon as I was here, I felt embraced and had already made some some very long-lasting friendships, people that I still hang out with and work with today. Hmm. And then the other side of the coin was because almost all of my working relationships were in California, I would spend a lot of time working out in California. Unfortunately for, for my wife and my family, I was gone pretty much half of the year, accumulative, mm-hmm. not at all in one chunk, but on different projects. I'd, and it was, it'd be hard. It was very hard at times, like two to four or five weeks at a time go and work on records out in California. That's a tense situation for anybody. I mean, you know, whether yeah. you're a traveling salesman, truck driver, in the military, whatever. How did you and your wife navigate that? Uh, we're still working on it. <laughs> yeah. but, but she's been incredibly supportive and she was working in real estate. She had a, you know, she had a full-time job, but she stopped doing that to stay home with our with our sons mm-hmm. uh, and be very supportive of me. And, and it's difficult. A lot of heartache, a lot of missed time, uh, a lot of loneliness. But just uh, when we work together, just make the most of that, just try to really be a team. It's a, it's a difficult job to be a single parent. And especially with someone that comes in and out of your life on an irregular schedule. And in this business, fortunately, now we don't have as many financial concerns. But there for a while, if you, if you don't work for couple months you live very hand to mouth and uh we just had to really stay par- partnered and be a team on it i don't i don't really know what the the magic is it's just just committed to the effort of uh, of working through it that's the thing it, and it's uh, it's easy to fall in love with something with yeah. someone or something yeah staying in love is that's the commitment that's the choice you have to get up and make this you have to make the same choice over and over again it evolves over time the same sacrifices and decision-making that we sort of had to do in the beginning becomes different 10 years down the road. And you just have to stay just stay on the course, really. Was there ever a time when you considered, hey, this isn't financially working out, I may have to get out of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, several times. Several times. And, and then also, also at times be- because it just felt like I was up against dead ends, not only just financially, but creatively burned out, unhappy with maybe some of the the periods of time where the people and some of the work that I was doing. I'm so fortunate now because I've gotten to a place where I'm kind of the boss. I call the shots. The work comes to me. I can say yes or no because most of the time I don't, at least now, for now, I'm Mm -hmm. in a period, I'm in a season of my life where uh, there's enough work offered to me that I can make choices and and be really engaged. I'm not I'm rarely ever doing something to make a paycheck. And that that's a that's a big deal. I feel like I'm 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 obviously I'm happy that we're here talking, but I'm honored that I get to talk to you because I knew where you came from initially and I've seen and watched your career go over time and maybe you can help demystify it for me because I've struggled with it myself and continue to struggle with it. Can you cite the point at which you came from you know, being the production manager at Slims and interning at Coast and where you're at now, was there somewhere in that timeline that you made a series of decisions that got you to where you're at now financially, career-wise, and where you are in this pole position? Um, I, I don't, I mean, and there's a few things that I can point to maybe that where I made really hard decisions, but no, I think it's when I decided to move to Nashville, when, you know, I was in my apartment in L.A., in the Hollywood Hills. I was out there working on a record. I had gotten an apartment because we were going to move our family to LA because that's where I was working the most. And sort of what made, it's like, what this is what makes sense for my career. I still had an apartment in San Francisco and we had an apartment in, in Nashville. And I was taking a shower, looking out the window. And it was, I just had this sort of overwhelming feeling and epiphany that this was not the thing to do. So I had a gut feeling and I just, I went with it. I, I, it was a very scary thing to move to Nashville, to, to leave behind all my friends and all my connections and go to some place where I was basically going to have to start over. But I made a life decision. I knew that that would be the best decision for my family and for, for my, for my life, my personal well being. And it's like I said a little while ago, it's, it, 
it's a decision you have to make every day. Now, do I wake up and feel resolved in my decision every day? No, I mean, sometimes I'm a wreck and a lot of anxiety, indecision, a lot of questions. But just try to take the time and make just make clear decisions and be willing to say no. Be willing to say no. Mm-hmm. Understand the lessons in getting fired and failure, or not failure, but when things don't necessarily go the way you think they should, or the, just be accepting, learn from it, move on. Use everything as a I try to use everything as a positive example to get always get something positive out of it. I I don't want to be sour grapes. I don't I don't want the things that I feel like that maybe didn't go my way or people didn't treat me right to, to sort of be my excuse to to stop. I know in my career making the decision to be an intern at studios or be an assistant engineer for Eric Valentine or or help Craig and Phil open toast to do those things, which in some ways to do that stuff for free, to do all that wiring, to spend all that time building a studio without being paid to do those things, because I knew there was an opportunity there for me to be willing to extend yourself and, and work for the things that, you know, that you want just to try to achieve my, my goal, my dreams. Uh, Cause I've, I've always had a lot of self-belief and I've had a lot of doubters along the way, hmm. like people, people like, wow, how did you get that gig? You're lucky or you whatever. It's just like, well, you know what? I showed up, I did the work and I had a good attitude. And that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I, I put myself in a position over and over again to, this is a, this is a people, this is a relationship. It's not just about like how, how technically savvy you are. Mm-hmm. It, you have to be a good person in terms of how you relate to people mm-hmm. and like how you can bond with people to do something creative. So, you know, I helped open that studio and, you know, one day Tom Waits was looking to change engineers. And so he asked his, his label in the, who maybe in the, if they had any contacts in the Bay Area that would maybe be an engineer that knew something about Pro Tools. Well, the call was directed to Philip because he was the guy that I was working for. And he said, no, it's not me. It's Jakir. So Philip calls me and said, hey, you're going to get a call from Tom Waits. And I thought he was joking because I'm <laughs> such a huge Tom Waits fan. But it's true. And I got, I got an opportunity to make uh, mule variations. And as a recording engineer uh, and a mixer, not, to, not so much as a mixer, but as a recording engineer, I learned an incredible amount about making records from doing that. But as the opportunity that it provided me as a recording engineer was huge. That relationship and that record has been one of the most meaningful things that has happened in my career because Tom is an amazing artist. He's a musician's musician. The list is long of people that love that record and have sought me out because of it. And that's very, that's very flattering. So it's, it's an opportunity. The work that I did with Eric Valentine and Smash Mouth and, and Third Eye Blind. And then, you know, those things lead to, I had an opportunity when I, once I moved here to make a relationship with Dennis Herring, who down in Oxford, Mississippi, made the Modest Mouse record. I mixed that Modest Mouse record. So that point in my career was where, oh, this guy can mix. You get mixing gigs. And then I worked with Kings of Leon. So it comes to their, their record and I'm, I get the opportunity to produce and, and that was successful. So, so you just have to be patient and it's really hard to break through all those, those walls, if you will. When you're in a situation where, okay, you're, maybe you're tracking the record. Do you actively put yourself out there and say, can I put my name in the hat for mixing this? Or do you just kind of lay cool and stay back and let people say, would you like to mix this? I think it's, I think it's always better to lay back and play it cool. But what you do do is you make incredible rough mixes and, <laughs> and you do it when no one asks you to do it. Go the extra mile and you, without being asked, you show somebody what you're capable of. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You want to demonstrate. That's why like being, when you're in the studio, it's, it's, Yes. When, if you're the intern, you're supposed to be in the back of the room and be quiet and keep your mouth shut. But when you're the producer, that doesn't give you the right to sort of be like the loudest voice in the room and, and sort of act, let, make sure that everybody knows you're the boss. You can be the boss without, you know, shouting out orders. You lead, you just lead by example and you just take all the opportunities you can. That's the way I do it is just make incredible rough mixes. And then I've been asked, there was a band that I was working with. Um, I was an engineer, assistant engineer at, at, um, at Toast. David Bianco was producing and engineering this record for a band called Black Lab. You know, when it came time to do some B-sides and some additional stuff, they're like, hey, dude, do you want to help us do this? And I was like, sure. Am I co-producing? And they said, sure. They said, sure. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. You know, that's 
did I charge him a lot of money? No, because because I was was smart enough to ask if I could if if you want me to do this, can I co- am I co-producing? And it's just it's just the way you position yourself sometimes without asking for too much or expecting too much, mm-hmm. um, but then also really offering a lot of yourself. So. It's a, it's a fine line. It's always better to have people come to you and ask you to help them. That's that's interesting, and it's I hear that you can lay back and and how you your demeanor and how you uh, present yourself. But then there's also the other part of the equation. It's how do you take care of yourself from a business financial perspective? Every opportunity that I could that felt appropriate to ask someone for guidance, a measuring stick, uh, I would ask. And then I've had managers along the way that have helped educate me, you know. But when I didn't have a manager and I was getting these better engineering gigs, it's, it's like I, I ask Eric, I was like, well, how much should I charge? What's the most money I could ask for? <laughs> you, you know, and then sort of think about that. And it's like, well, some engineers at the t- you know, some engineers get paid $750 a day. It's like, okay, um, nobody's going to pay me $750 a day, but but I could maybe ask for 500 you know. That's definitely more than I'm getting now, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, I might have been making two, two fifty a day. Like twice as much money sounds good to me. It's not three times as much money, but but that's I'm gonna fall in the middle ground. Mixers now get paid like I don't know anywhere from three to eight thousand dollars a song. You know, so it's like okay, I get it. So you 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 price yourself at a at a place where you're you're increasing your income, you're built, you're building. It, it it's just a, it's a it's a slow thing and. And sometimes you just have to understand the situation where you can maybe ask for a little too much and sort of where they're not just going to flat turn you down, maybe just extend a little bit and see where you can negotiate to. I think it's important to always be trying to charge as much money as you can because there's going to be the situations where you want to do it for a lot less because it's just something you want to be involved in and it will afford you that opportunity. But it's a negotiating thing. I I don't really know what the, the answer is. I can tell you what the scale of things are. And that I, I advise all the guys that work for me, I always push them to ask for more money. I try to pay them as much as I can, but when they're doing other things and, and doing independent, I, I, I tell them what, what they could be getting, what's possible, what the competition could be getting, and, and, and encourage them to charge that. The thing is, is if someone is paying you a, a decent amount of money, they're, they're really, that's also, that's a gesture. If you can get them to do that, that's a gesture of trust. Now you have to show up and do the work. You have to do a great job to deserve great pay. But if you have somebody that agrees to pay you a lot of money, they are giving themselves over to you. Usually, not, not not always fully, but but you know what I mean. It's just like they're making they're making commitment to you. And if you can show that you're committed to them, then it, it will it usually works out. I don't know if that psychology makes sense. No, it does. It's it's. I'm just I'm analyzing it from so many different angles and thinking of a million different questions. Well, shoot some holes time. in it for me or ask me some questions. <laughs> <laughs> it just I, I guess and maybe it's my own lack of knowledge and 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 this is where my lack of where I that where I feel like I've been sitting here for so many years and I see a lot of other people like, you know, crossing a bridge and I always feel like the bridge, I can't even find the entrance to the bridge, you know, and it's and the, and I always talk about on my show. We always talk about ecosystems. The, you know, mm-hmm. Los Angeles and Nashville and Bay Area and New York and all, and even you know, other parts of the of the world. The ecosystems are different, and it's what somebody can charge in Nashville and what's normal. People in the Bay Area are like, "Are you kidding me? How much do you want to charge for a mix?" <laughs> and and it's and it's kind of strange because the you know the cost of living in the Bay Area is is shot through the roof. Yet, right. what you can make is an engineer has probably stayed at 1990, 1988 levels. Mm-hmm. Yet the cost of living in Nashville is much lower, but there's an ecosystem and an infrastructure here. Therefore, people yep. get paid appropriately based on the work. Yeah. Well, that's also, you're, we're also in an environment where there's a lot of session musicians and things are, there's a bit more of a an organized way that not everybody works, but there, it's a pretty substantial thing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, not that like the musicians are getting, you know, like making a ton of money and, and for what their, their creative output and the things that they actually pour into you know, people's records that you could say that you could argue that they're underpaid for sure. But I mean, they're paid, they're paid, they're paid decently mm-hmm. for sure. And often there's double and triple scale sessions. And so it kind of, it creates an environment where real money is being spent and, 
and it's helped keep the 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 billable the the book rate I guess of studios up and so you're by being here you're in an environment where real money is being spent and it's it's a little bit easier to uh, I guess it's more normal like perhaps is the right way to say it to to be paid decently you're obviously at a, at a, at a much more comfortable position financially than you were a while ago along the way in your path did you have a philosophy about your relationship with money and how to uh, make it work, even though there was great uncertainty. Well, when I when it was just me, I spent every possible penny on gear, mm-hmm. and uh, made made that investment. I extended myself. Um, I had loans sometimes to to do things, just to not put myself in not put myself in a situation that I couldn't keep up with, mm-hmm. but definitely push the envelope. Not to to um, it was also sort of motivation for myself. It kept me kept me a little bit. Uh, fearing, I guess, not working or not being productive, or not not working hard. Um, but you know, sometimes I would have to go paint houses if I didn't have a gig to pay, mm-hmm. to pay to pay for the loans that I had when I wasn't making enough money to pay them. My attitudes about money, well, you can't. It, it's like risk. You you have to take a you have to take a risk if you want to have a a better out. If you want to have a better payoff, you have mm-hmm. to you have to take a calculated risk. It's all a calculated risk. And be willing to to do the work. I my attitudes about money. It was about getting out of debt at, when I got married. That was the first goal to get out of debt, and so that it, we could get a house. And did that stuff. And I got I sacrificed things. I sold things that, to get out of debt and to be able to have the house. Mm-hmm. It's about a balance of priorities. I, I have this wonderful studio now that we're in, mm-hmm. but this is the first time that I've actually owned a place. That was a studio that wasn't in the basement of my house. You know, <laughs> I've had lots of studios along the way where partnerships or rented things or, or, or however, I couldn't have had this building and this studio 10 years ago. I would have overextended myself. Okay. I could have. I could have done it. I don't know that I could have owned it. I don't know that I could have comfortably owned it. Right. You know, that's the thing. I can manage. I don't own it outright. I mean, I have a mortgage on this. I'm paying sure. for it. But I'm in a position to where I can do that and it. It, it, it makes sense. I, you know, I also have to provide for my family, their education and food and pay our bills. And But at a certain point, it's, it was about getting out of debt. The only thing that we pay, the only thing that I have, um, uh, I guess, a payment on are my homes or my, the, my property. I don't have a car payment. It's like, I don't want to drive a car that I can't afford to, to buy with cash. And just all sort of things like that. I don't. I don't buy equipment anymore unless I can buy it outright. Um, and just have sort of transition into those things. I've been very, very fortunate in this in this day and age when records don't really sell a lot of units. I have been fortunate over the last ten years to get some pretty decent royalty checks. And every every couple few years, it has it has been that way to where I get like a an inf- an infusement of money, mm-hmm. and I have savings now. I have a retirement plan, looking to buy some rental property, and just 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 slowly building. Um, just trying to be really careful with the money that I do have. It's way different than it was twenty years ago for me. Now, <laughs> I'm sure. Is there routines that you like? Personal routines. I always I always bring this up. Some people uh, get up and run in the morning. Some people smoke pot. Some people drink a lot of coffee. Some people meditate. I do a little bit of everything. <laughs> but yeah, that's it's just like there's the there's the balance, you know, but I do I do try to take really good care of myself uh physically because I'm I'm a very emotional person. Um I wear my heart on my sleeves, I guess a little bit, but because I'm such an emotional person and I'm such a hard worker and I if I can say these things about myself, the people that I that I'm making a record with, mm-hmm. I care about the outcome for them. As much as I care about for myself, I got to take care of myself. So I exercise pretty regularly. It changes over the years as you age. It's like I can't do the same kind of exercise that I used to do 20 years ago. I don't go to the gym and lift weights and and abuse my body in those ways. It's like I, I try to just stay flexible and take care of being flexible and because it, it makes me mentally brighter. Mm-hmm. It, it gets rid of uh, the, all the emotional and just the stress of the world. The world is an incredibly busy place. And just with all the technology we have and how connected we are, it's almost you can't get away from things mentally. I try to eat pretty decently. I exercise. I 
Um, I try to spend time with friends, not as much because I have because I always place my family first. Mm-hmm. I just try to balance things. I I like to exercise in the morning. Kind of gives I kind of alternate between. Like yesterday was sort of an exercise morning for me. Mm-hmm. Today was an email paperwork morning for me. This evening I'm getting together with a friend. We're going to play nine holes of golf. I'm in a little bit of a staycation right now. Like Tuesday was a family day where where relatives came over to our house and we hung out. I don't work on the weekends anymore unless I absolutely have to. Sometimes it makes sense to because of financial constraints or whatever that we have to work on a Saturday and sometimes a holiday. That's just just, just the way it is. But I try to balance that with not working too long of days. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes do we hit the 14 hour mark? Yes, unfortunately. But typically it's typically it's more around 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Just try to show up and be effective. And if you can't record something substantial in half a day or a day, then something's wrong. You're not thinking about it right. You don't have the right material. You don't have the right people. Something is amiss. Mm-hmm. Just try to do a little bit of everything. But for me, definitely taking care of my health is a big thing because if I don't have my physical well-being, I don't have the ability to sit in a studio and grind it out. Which we do sitting in a chair in front of a computer. Yeah. A lot. A lot. Are there inspirational quotes that you live by or always carry with you? Albert Einstein said that creativity is more important than intelligence. What that says to me is that knowing how to do something is not necessarily as important as having a vision for doing something. And I think that that, especially in the studio recording, is important because we know the rules about gain structure and what microphones you should put in front of what and how loud it should be and how in tune or in time something is. Mm-hmm. There's all the, there's like all these parameters, especially now that people are making records more and more with their eyes. There's like all these parameters that we have, like technical and process, all this sort of stuff. But it's just a matter of, it's about having a vision for it and what do you want it to feel like to me? And so sometimes, sometimes all of the things that would be the normal way to achieve something don't really get you the result. So you just have to experiment um, and, and fish around for it. I think, I think being creative is more about following a feeling and a vision and a, and a passion for something than it is actually knowing how to do it. Mm-hmm. And always just keeping that in mind that uh, if somebody suggests something that doesn't seem logical technically, that you shouldn't dismiss it because it doesn't seem f- technically feasible. Figure out how to approximate it, even if, you, even if you're using things in, the, in what would be the wrong way. That's the way you discover things. Um, and sort of put yourself in an unknown territory. So, I mean, other inspirational things. Um, that, I mean, kind of motivate you personally mm. to stay focused, to stay on track, to stay the uh, path. Just successful people, do-it-yourselfers that are just everywhere in the world, not just in the music business. It's I just look around me and, and see people that have their own businesses or their or they have a passion for something creative. Uh, and they're just kind of pushing themselves. I'm disappointed when I s- think I see someone who has reached a certain stage in their life, no matter what it is, and that's kind of where they stop. They just get into a space and they occupy that space, and then they just that's that bubble that they just kind of like float into the future in. I never want to be stationary or satisfied. Not that I'm not that I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. And I'm unsatisfied with life. I just, I, I just, I'm always pursuing what what is beyond or what's next, what's what's possible, and pushing myself because I'm very fortunate with, I think, in some of the skills that, that I don't possess in a great measure. But I understand them in terms. Of, I'm talking about like record making. Uh, I'm not a very good singer, uh, but I know what a great voice is. Yeah. And I really admire someone who can sing. I have a feeling and knowledge about what it takes. I can't do it myself. It's like kind of being a coach. So it, it, it's, it's just being open to where your strengths and weaknesses are, accepting your weaknesses and not feeling uh, ashamed of them mm-hmm. and look to how you can improve them. I don't know. Those are the things that inspire me. It's like, I'm, I have like, I have fantastic relative pitch, but I have, I have some guys that work for me that, that have perfect pitch. They can tell you what the chord of is. 
uh, you know, what, oh, that's a C. I'm like, okay. And I'm getting better at identifying it be- from being around them because I, because I have good relative pitch. I know when something's in tune and not in tune, but it, I couldn't tell you whether it's a C or an A or whatever. Um, but I'm getting better. And, and where I used to feel really, you know, shy about that, you know, someone in my position should have all this stuff covered. But I mean, Rick Rubin, I mean, Rick Rubin, I don't think could, you know, but when you're kind of coming up and you're developing yourself and, and you see all these people around you, yeah, you know, that's the thing. Rick Rubin is someone that I look up to because I know, because he's not really a musician in a way. He's, he's incredibly musical mm-hmm. and he knows about music, but he doesn't have necessarily the same, he doesn't have the facility that some of the musicians that are making the records. And then, and so I look to him and I'm like, you know what? There's a very successful person and it doesn't matter because he he trusts himself in the things that he does know and the things that he doesn't know he's aware of it and he lets somebody else take care of that he's confident enough to be able to be in charge and delegate those things and so i'm i'm inspired by 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 him very much he's had an incredibly successful career and he's impacted music in many many huge ways way. huge huge ways and he's it's about it's about being confident in yourself but not being egotistical yeah because that way you can be effective final question mentorship mm-hmm. did that play a major role for you in me being mentored yeah not so much i guess unfortunately i mean eric eric sort of took me under his wing but it was more we we're partners in a way i mean he definitely you know i was definitely the junior partner for there for a while but you were qualified but i was qualified and so you know it's just like we, we fed off of each other. I really, Eric is probably the one person that I can think of that was sort of a mentor to me. The, every, everything else was just sort of like every situation that I put myself in was sort of a mentor. I never, I didn't really have any one person. Mm. It's just, I just made myself available to so many situations that I just learned a lot from being around a lot of different things. But I did see examples of bad mentorship. <laughs> and so I think that also helped me to see the things that I didn't want to be around. And it's helped me with the guys that are, that are under me. I have learned a lot. I've had many, many people work under me. Some of them have gone on to do music and some have gone on to get out of music and do other things in life. And I've stayed friends with them, but it's been a real growth for me in learning how to, because I haven't always been good at it. I like, I have always haven't been a good leader. And, and from that, I've learned how to be better and be more positive and, and have a, a, a more giving influence on, on those around me. Because the thing is, is when you raise, when you raise up the people that are un, underneath you and around you, um, you have a, you, you have a really great team. And, you know, the young guys that work for me, they have lots of talent and potential, the same as I did at one point. I've gotten somewhere, I've achieved something, and I hope for them the same opportunity. And so I want to, want to help make them feel like that that's possible for them too. Hmm. And, and so lead them in a, in a way that um, is, is um, you know, inspiring and helpful because they're helping me. So in mentoring others, I have been mentored, I guess is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I could see that. I could see how that it becomes circular in the relationship in, in that way. Well, thank you, Jakir. I, I deeply appreciate you having me over here. I, it was a thrill to have you here today too, and I and I hope that I've shared some things that are that are are worthwhile for some other folks. Oh, I think so, because there's not the information you've presented here. There's not a lot of that out in the world, and I think there's a lot of people who are fans of your work who I think are going to be thrilled. No, well, I appreciate that. So, so much, thank man. you, Shakir King, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Really, really great interview, in my opinion. I really enjoyed that. I don't know if you did, but I sure as hell did. Uh, Jakir is a very, very uh, low-key guy, very thoughtful. And I texted him afterwards and said, you know, I really enjoyed our interview and I got a lot out of it. And you got me thinking on a lot of different topics and kind of rethinking my own career. And uh, he, of course, graciously replied back immediately and just said, you know, it was my pleasure and Uh, Thank you for letting me be a part of Working Class Audio. And what a great guy. And plus, you know, we have that Bay Area connection. So that's always a good thing. So um, that's it. We're done. We are absolutely done. It's been a fantastic time here in Nashville. I just want to thank everybody that in Nashville that has been uh, 
super accommodating and super uh, welcoming and what a great place, man. Love it here. Anyhow, we are out of time. So uh, let's head out. Let's thank everybody. Let's thank, of course, uh, Cliff Truesdale, Cole Williams, Chuck Smith. Let's thank our sponsors, GearSluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, and Lawton Audio. And as usual, I really, really appreciate you all listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.